Thank you for visiting the MediOps Show, brought to you by the Medical Logistics and Transportation Organization, MediOps. I'm your host, Ryland Stone. Today we are speaking with Jonathan Fite. Jonathan is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Beyond Lucid Technologies, an organization focused on building the infrastructure to share critical health information with first responders. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So to just really jump right into it, let's kind of go back in, in your story and we'll go back to your childhood. Tell me if there's ever any time when you have like the, that entrepreneurial spark as you're growing up. Any, I, personally, I had some small businesses kind of growing up, but yeah, give me some background there. Oh, man. Uh, so you, you're about to rip off a bunch of scar tissue then? Uh, <laughs> so, so Beyond Lucid Technologies is not my first company. Uh, it is, it is the one that I have worked with, uh, and, uh, helmed, I suppose, uh, the longest, uh, before this, I, I had a, a publishing company, believe it or not. Um, we, we published the world's first all digital magazine that was called citizen culture magazine way back when we can talk about it if you'd like. Uh, but s- since you asked about, you know, we're laying down on the couch here and sort of laying bare the, the psychotherapy, <laughs> Um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Um, so if any of your uh, listeners have shopped at Costco, for example, and buy those those twisty light bulbs, uh, that's actually my uncle's company, oh, yeah. uh, Fight Electric. So, you know, I, I come from a, a lineage of folks when, when my great-grandparents were in Poland, um, my family's uh, religious history is Jewish. Uh, and the Jewish community in parts of Europe for a long time were not allowed to own the land, for example. That was a, a, a way of sort of, it was, a, it was a persecutorial thing, probably beyond the scope for today. But um, they got clever, and they said, well, they can't own land. So they bought the trees that were on the land, which they were allowed to buy, and they opened a paper mill. Yeah. Uh, and and that was actually how they earned their living until they left Europe during World War II. Then... <laughs> My my dad and whatnot. We've you know we've got a lot of entrepreneurs. We've got lawyers and doctors and kind of all those things. Um, I wasn't planning on going that path, but I did want another way to serve. Uh, and uh, you know that I can I can certainly talk to you about how I got to where I am now if you wanted. But uh, I think I've always been surrounded by the idea that if if you see a problem in the world and you have a way of a clever way of addressing it, then you know go forth and go forth and do it. Yeah, for sure. For the publishing company that you guys were doing, what was the the main target or industry you were in? So uh, I appreciate you asking about it. Uh, it was my my first love, and it'll break your heart every day and twice on Sunday publishing business. Um, but it was actually we were we were seeking to create essentially a young New Yorker, uh, and we actually got we were once described as a New Yorker for a new generation. It was a a very a very nice point of pride. But uh, actually, the the long and short of the story is I had wanted to break into the publishing business. I'd wanted to be a journalist and it's really hard uh, to start out without a lot of experience. It's very similar to entrepreneuring actually, right? That, how do you raise the money if you don't have any track record? How do you get track record if you don't raise the money? So I, I sought to break the chicken egg cycle. Um, and one of the biggest points of pride is over the course of our publishing history, we, we introduced 86 new authors and artists to the world who had never had a previous clip and many of them went on to write books and use some other really wonderful things in their careers. And they literally got their start in our publication. Um, 
a couple of years later, I I put together what it did. It didn't launch. The timing was wrong, but um, it would. It was the the first all inclusive weddings magazine. Uh, so focus on uh, interracial, interfaith, and same sex weddings. Um, for better and worse, our our com- our country was not quite uh, in the liberal minded position that it was at the time that I was writing it. So market was not exactly there. If it had been a couple years later, it, it it would have been gangbusters. And and it really actually to me underscored an enormous uh, the enormous value of the timing bit. Uh, and that's been really important now as well. So sort of finding a way to to survive finding a way to to serve your market because sometimes it takes time for the market to catch up uh you mentioned yeah. that of course right before we started that you know digital health and health it i think are uh you know case study in that like you may have a wonderful yeah. idea that's that's out of sync with where the market is um and uh, a couple of years later so now a couple of years ago i got quoted by the san francisco chronicle in an article about entrepreneurship tied at the jp morgan healthcare conference and you know, when you talk to a reporter, you're never sure what's going to come out of your mouth or what they're going to quote. Um, but in this case, it actually worked out really well. And they quoted me saying that my definition of entrepreneurship was finding a way to survive until the market wants what you have to offer. Um, and yeah. I think that is something where, you know, COVID-19, as an example, was catalytic. Um, and so many ideas that had been ahead of their time were now perfectly timed. Um, and some things that maybe were no longer as relevant got weeded out. And so you have, when you have a market shock, uh, it kind of gets people to say, what what do we have around here that we weren't paying attention to? And now we now we need it. And so we, to me, that's kind of been the theme of my career is, is sometimes being ahead of the curve. And now it's finding ways to to, uh, to better align that with the demand and, and, and bring the economics to bear. For sure. And I, I think that'll definitely we can get into your company beyond Lucid Technologies in a little bit. Uh, but so after you had that the publishing business, it looks like just looking over your LinkedIn, you went to Carnegie Mellon. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. So I, uh, I didn't want to be in the advertising business. I mean, that was, that was really not my gig. Uh, I wanted to be a publisher. I wanted to be a you know magazine editor and a writer. And uh, I was, I was passionate about the words and, and the idea of, of selling ads was really not what I wanted to do. Um, it turns out because some of my work now overlaps with that. It, it wasn't really the advertising that I had an issue with. It was the idea that selling, selling portions of a page is not really passion inspiring, hmm. right? People like the creativity of the publishing business. The media business, media business is wonderful, by the way. Um, I mean, it's hard for sure, but it's fun, right? I mean, you get to talk to a lot of interesting people and go places and tell stories. It's it's really enjoyable. Um, but, you know, buy a quarter page in a magazine that I hope someone might potentially pick off the newsstand. And if they do, I hope they might potentially, you know, search a, a turn to that page. That That's a hard business to do. Um, yeah. so I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it anymore. I, uh, I, I, my, my passion was in healthcare. Um, I have a disability, so I don't know if you're seeing it yet, but, uh, I'm, I have Tourette syndrome, so I'm a twitchy guy. If, if I seem a little twitchy on your screen here, don't adjust your monitor. It's me, not you. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I had a lot of history even before being in publishing. I joined the, the army on September 11th. Um, I enlisted. Uh, and, you know, Tourette syndrome in the United States Army don't really see eye to eye because uh, my eyes move all over the place. Um, <laughs> so, um, so you know that was that was where my heart was. You know, going and 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 working in a public service capacity where there were folks who were soldiers and sailors and and airmen and medics and firefighters and folks who had put themselves in harm and police officers. And I and I really wanted to be able to help them um, using technology and innovation and healthcare and, and kind of 
close some of the gaps, both about their own patients and about themselves, you know, the things that they're exposed to. Um, and so I left and I, I, I thought I was going to go be a doctor and kind of go that route through the medical business. Uh, and then I ran into the uh, immovable object that was organic chemistry. Uh, we too <laughs> did not see eye to eye. Uh, and so the, you know, as a friend of mine says, long story, less long. Um, I had a professor who basically suggested if I wanted to be in the medical business, maybe go, go to business school, uh, <laughs> and, and go that route and, and link up with clinicians as opposed to having to be a clinician. So that's how I ended up in business school, met my business partner there. Um, and we founded our company six months in uh, to Carnegie Mellon's credit. And I really think it's due because um, we're the only company that was created in our year that still exists. It's actually a point of pride for us. And, oh, wow. and you guys were founded in 2009. 2009. Wow. Yep. Yep. Jan in uh, 2009, we Chris and I got together in 2009 in January, founded the company in May. Um and uh, Carnegie Mellon's an investor in us, so we're certainly grateful to them for that. Um, but but they did a wonderful thing. It took some convincing, but they let us bend almost our entire curriculum around this work. So we actually had about 18 months or so of protected deep dive market research stuff, the stuff that's really expensive to do, to try to understand and interview and do all the things that you know you tell people to do when you're on a startup venture. Um, and the only class that I don't think we were able to do that for was corporate finance because, you know, you're studying public companies, but marketing, presentations, finance, modeling, design, all these things that CMU does wonderfully well at a really deep level. And we bent it all around Beyond Lucid and um, basically came out with a plan. We still had to build the product and sort of do all the things there, but at least we understood some of what the market need was. Um, and we bootstrapped. I mean, our company has raised less than a million dollars in external financing. Uh, okay, and I, I, don't, I don't think if we hadn't, ha if we hadn't had that, you know, that was kind of an extended incubator, you know, when you think about what so many mm. incubators do and we did it in school. Um, and, uh, and so that credit, you know, I don't get a chance to say it often, but, but credit really goes to them for, for letting us do that. And, and it, it launched us in a way that would have potentially been very expensive, either in cash or in equity to do once if we were doing it without the protection of being in school for sure and so what was the first iteration of beyond lucid were you guys doing consulting for um healthcare organizations fire ems what no actually if you, if you look if you look back uh almost a direct line back from where we are now we were doing the same work just took a while to get in the market um gotcha. we've done some consulting work along the way obviously that can be a great way to help pay the bills uh, but we we came like I said, we came out of school in 2010 it took a couple of years to build the product and we did a lot of, uh, you know, talking with um, fire EMS agencies, uh, hospital systems, public health systems, kind of trying to understand what this market space was and how we were seeing some really big problems that I'm happy to tell you about if you want to know. But we, we were looking at the incumbencies and we saw what was there and we basically said, how the hell do these problems still exist if, if you've got these big companies? I mean, clearly somebody's missing the boat somewhere. Uh, and, or or these problems should have been solved, but we're talking about multi-billion dollar problems. Um, actual cash money, not like potential TAM, but money being left on the table in the billions. Uh, and so we looked at that and thought, well, there's got to be something here. Um, emergency medical services and medical transportation, as you know, is, is extremely complicated from a regulatory perspective. Um, it's one of the, it, it is triple regulated just at the federal level. Uh, let alone state local rules, uh, you know, medical directors and their their views on things. So 
we needed to understand all of that. And we went through a compliance process that took us to 2013. So our we were the first uh, company in the space to achieve Nemesis 3 compliance, which is the national EMS information system. We were the very first company to do it. Um, and, be and before and we get too much into that, how about you give us like a little elevator pitch on what you guys do at Beyond Lucid? So for my little yeah, research, no. I believe you're like a, an EPCR and you guys do a whole bunch of other stuff too. But yeah, give me like a 30 second elevator pitch. Well, and that's kind of where I'm actually just about to touch you. So I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm glad I'm kind of in line with your question. Um, but it, it all started with the documentation system. So our, our Ballywick, our, our focus is to connect the dots between the responders in the field and the care ecosystems in which they operate. Uh, it, it all started really by, by having a record system that was high integrity of uh, easy enough to complete that you could get it done without having to spend hours doing your documentation. Uh, we really focused on those those human computer interface aspects that Carnegie Mellon you know does so very well from a software perspective. Uh, and then it, it quickly became clear that just capturing the data, just the electronic patient care record, was not enough. Uh, people were starting to ask for that information to be moved. Interoperability was really coming into its early iterations right around then with uh, Affordable Care Act as a, a tailwind to it. Um, so we started focusing on interoperability. We got some funding in the, you know, from the California Healthcare Foundation in 2014. So right after we uh, we sort of came into the market as a compliant system, we got our first couple of agencies on board. But then we got this funding, and the funding was around what is now called community paramedicine, which is essentially keeping people in their homes, right, and, and not necessarily transporting them. But in order to do that, you need visibility on the data. So you need to understand who's being cared for and where and why and why this time versus last time, sort of that longitudinal view. Um, so the California Healthcare Foundation, because of the way their charter structure, they're not allowed to fund uh, EMS and, and fire agencies, but they are allowed to fund municipalities and hospitals and health systems. But it turns out that when you look at community paramedicine, they're all involved, right? So they were able to fund this. And, and so they gave us some money to essentially create a, an interface engine that would let hospitals and health information exchanges absorb and ingest and use the data from outside the hospital. Um, and we deployed that in 2015. So that was, we, we sort of focused on these pipes that we call the pre-hospital pipes. And everything really flowed from that um, because we realized again, if if that old benefit of interoperability only worked with our system, we'd have to take everybody off of whatever charting system they already had. That's not gonna work at scale for a small company. Um, I mean the conversion times alone would knock your socks off. So we detached the pieces and that's really what we focus on. That's our, our you know, I describe our at Quilio for emergency medical services or Palantir for emergency medical services. We, we are the companies behind the guys that sort of detach these pieces that allow you to take your Zoll, ESO, Image Trend, Intermedics, uh, Sancio charting system and move it. And, and have the receiver on the HIE side, the EHR side, et cetera, ingest the data and then be able to do things like anal analytics and tracking um, for community paramedicine and specialty care registries that kind of marry up with the records. So it's really all these pipes behind the scenes. And that's what we do. Um, it turns out those holes in this e ecosystem are massive and there are huge amounts of cost and, and mortality and morbid morbidity on the line if you can't get it right. And so our focus has really been on making sure the responders have all the information they need and then they can convey that to whoever's going to take custody of the patient next. Very That's cool. It. That's so, very 
So just to like clarify my understanding for any of the listeners that may or may not know, I was a EMT a while back uh, doing ambulances. You're running emergencies, all that good stuff. Thank uh, you for your so- yeah, of course. Um, and then just to make sure I kind of understand. So we used Image Trend was the, the software that we were familiar with. So yep. if I'm an EMT, I'm, I'm on scene of a patient, I'm putting in information and then that's getting transferred directly to the ED in live time. So they know that incoming patient before my like, call-in report or is it, do I understand that? Right? Yeah, that's that's the idea, um, but, but it goes further. So, uh, and it's funny, I, I just published an article or uh, excuse me, I just conducted an interview that got turned into an article for Health Leaders Media well, I'll be happy to send you the link if you want to post it with the article on the uh, pod. Um, I did an interview with Image Trend and Epic, uh, the big EHR vendor, uh, at Hims a couple weeks ago. Uh, so this is Hims twenty three for posterity, and I asked them some pretty hard questions. And I I had a video on it, uh, 72, 72 minutes of recorded video of of them walking me through exactly what happens and what doesn't happen when image trend itself sends data over to the hospital and in in image trends uh, you know corner there are some things they do very well um they they can send alerts and so on and so forth um around who's coming in if that information has been captured problem is as they demonstrated and we have epic talking about this they don't take the raw data so image trend is essentially giving them a pdf uh, and the PDF attaches to something, but you can't really mine it. Hmm. So if you're looking at trying to uh, understand what Ryland's needs are and how those have evolved over time uh, and who you're going to need to talk to next and who we're going to refer you to and how we're going to do the follow-up and, you know, are we seeing sparks of communicable disease and infection? And, you know, all of that stuff's really tough if all you have is PDFs. So our goal is to say, if you want to use image trend in the field, awesome, knock yourself out. I mean, there are whole states like Maryland and Delaware where you don't have a choice. So you're really going to have to knock yourself out. Uh, But that doesn't mean that Johns Hopkins can take their data and put it into the EHR. That doesn't mean that the the, the HIE in the region can share the data. And if you cross over a state line into D.C., all of that goes dark. Right. So that's a huge problem when you think about how many people live in Baltimore, have their information in an infrastructure in Maryland and then go down to the nation's capital a 45 minute trip away and all their information is missing. So for us, it's about liberating those data so that they can cross those lines securely. Right. That you're maintaining compliance and doing all the stuff. Um, But the data are discrete so they can flow much more easily and you can send them to different places and you can pull in alerts from apps that people on their phone and you can merge them with an epcr or even on the back side so when someone has the epcr from image trend and then they have a an alert coming through pulsera or something they can meet in the middle right there's all kinds of cool stuff that we can do as long as you break out the zeros and the ones and they're not bounded within that system the, the real shame and it's fascinating to me but the 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 mobile medical business, EMS, fire, community, paramedicine, critical care, et cetera, is about five to six years behind the rest of the electronic health records ecosystem in this. And, and I have been one for many years who's been trying to get the whole ecosystem to say, we know what this is going to do. We know the direction it's going, right? Can we avoid the the lag and the delay and, and, and sort of the screwing around? Um, and we haven't avoided it. We've run headlong into it. 
Um, so, so now it provides an opportunity to say, all right, we've seen what it looks like when interoperability doesn't go the distance. Are mm -hmm. we about done? Like, can we, can we, can we go in and now say, all right, we, now we know that the goal is for you, Ryland, to be able to do exactly what you just said, which is I've got my patient. I'm going to land the data over there. I've got my charting system in the field. That's great. Who else needs to know about this? Where does it need to go? Why is the health information exchange not receiving it? What if it could? And, you know, could you ping a registry of special health needs? Could you ping a registry of, uh, you know, critical medical wishes? Could you ping a registry that says this person has an implant or a transplant? You know, there's all these different things you can do once the data are discrete. And so that's what our focus is on, is on moving those pieces around and sort of crawling through the ecosystem to say, what is that EMS professional in the field going to need? Because right now, as you know, they show up and they don't have, a, they don't have much at all. Uh, and so they make do. And, and I don't think they should have to make do. I think there's enormous risk to the patient. I think there's enormous risk to the provider. We are spending huge amounts of money on people going to the wrong places, uh, staying longer, waiting to be seen for hours. Uh, all of that can be solved if we liberate the data. And so our focus has been pulling it out of its shells. Um, and uh, it seems to be working. Gotcha. Very, that's really, really interesting. It's 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 cool coming from a, a clinical background, seeing the progress that's hopefully going to be there. And it sounds like what you were mentioning on the end there, you're transitioning from that EPCR, the transmission and kind of getting that raw data to honestly more of like a, a predictive or more informed response from that EMS crew. So you guys are telling them like, Hey, EMS crew, you're dispatched on this. You're dispatched to a 23 year old female in a car. She's currently uh, do not resuscitate and she's on blood thinners. And they would have all that info prior to that yes. dispatch. There's your bingo. That's very, it. very cool. Yeah, that, yep. that would definitely increase patient care. And uh, just to what you spoke to there, there's there's a cost aspect to taking yep. patients to the, the correct centers and where they need to go. Um, and there might there's be a revenue other... opportunity too, by the way, right? I mean, getting getting yeah. getting the whole process moving faster, right? I remember, I mean, this is one of the things you learn in business school. It's not rocket science, but you know, a negative loss is a gain, right? So so speed is speed is revenue, right? The ability to not be wasting time is revenue because you can be doing other things or streamline your operation, reduce less waste and attrition and grind and, you know, that sort of thing. But at the same time, if you're able to match the patient with the best location, there's value created. Um, that value can be measured. Uh, I just, I, this is what I give presentations on to a lot of places is the economics beyond a mileage rate. I mean, mileage rate is kind of a crappy way of measuring what, what medics do. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I just posted something about this funny just last night on LinkedIn, which I, I can, you know, ring up if you want or you can go find it. But um, it was just about that. People talking about how, you know, what the role of AI is going to be, uh, mm -hmm. for example, in this space. I have a lot of feelings on that, which I'm happy to address to you. But but ultimately it was, you know, AI is a data-driven enterprise. It's a data-driven concept. So if, if people are going to ask for raises and they're going to want to be described as essential and they and all of these things that mobile medical professionals want and deserve, they've got to be able to prove the value. And, and the problem is if your documentation, if your data systems are so riddled with errors, and part of the reason they're riddled with errors is because they're complicated, they're not very well designed, and, and they just kind of haven't kept up with modernity, then people aren't going to want to put their data in. That becomes a self-perpetuating crisis because... You know, I know of fire departments that have been involved in major saves 
I mean, if you remember those those fires we had here in California a couple of years ago, and I had some yeah. fire departments come to me and say, we are being asked by our city council what we did. What was our involvement? What do you mean it was involvement? You still have a town. <laughs> Clearly, your involvement is evident all around you, right? But it turned out that another service in their jurisdiction had a really, really good handle on their data. And they understood mm-hmm. how to say, this is what we did for who and where, and this is where they ended up, and this is how they performed, and this was the outcome, and this is you know what the basically the downstream value of everything we did. And the fire department kind of looked around and said, we saved some buildings, uh, mm-hmm. and we pulled some people out. And that's great. True. I mean, there's no knocking what they did, but they really undersold their value. And so I come in and sort of say, if if I can help you realize that the quality of what you put into these systems is going to indicate what you did, all of a sudden, it's not a charting system anymore. It's a compendium of your knowledge and expertise. And if you're good at what you do and you did good work, you deserve to be compensated for it. Um, that that has a lot of value it has value to the to the providers it has value to the patients the ecosystem there's less waste um but not a lot of folks in our industry think like this and you you mentioned sort of moving from the epcr the reason why i always start with the epcr and i'm glad you did too is is you have to have a solid data structure underneath this if if you're floppy floppy with an f as in frank not sloppy right but if you're if you're floppy you don't have a rigid economic structure. You you know, this is what they teach you in business school, right? You have to learn how to do the math. And if you don't have the math, you, you can't very well say, this is what you should be paying me because I can't measure it that way. But if we start with the EPCR, then you've got plenty of data to work with. Um, and so it really becomes a matter of, of, of translating that value proposition to the payer, whoever that payer is going to be, whether that is an insurance company or a government entity, or a patient, uh, and their family, right? What did I do for you as a patient? Maybe you want pay for me. Maybe you're a self-insured patient. There's lots of reasons why we want to have that conversation. But if you don't have any data, you can't progress past a heartstring story. And that may yeah. be a wonderful thing, and it gets you an award and a pat on the back, but it's not going to get you, you know, people to open their wallets. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. I do think as data continues to develop and AI is continuing to advance a lot of different industries. It'll be really interesting and exciting to see how it impacts healthcare for just kind of going back, just overview questions. As you were going through and building Beyond Lucid, what were some of your early challenges? Obviously you're, you're a software company and kind of working on that, but yeah, what were some early challenges you were experiencing? Actually, it's funny you mentioned that. That actually turned out to be a very important challenge at the beginning. Uh, hardware was not available. Um, a lot of places that we first approached, uh, uh, you know, again, going back like 10 or 12 years, were actually using software, or excuse me, hardware that were in some cases four or five, even more years older than that. So your power was actually a real issue uh, and, and it changed significantly. Um, we have had some partnerships over the years with folks like Dell mm-hmm. uh, and they were great partnerships, but we actually were introducing two this sector, some of the higher power, rugged, even non-rugged devices and saying, look, you may think that you need, in fact, this is an actual conversation I had, the rugged PCs that folks were using once upon a time cost about $4,000. You probably used some of those. Well, if you've got an $800 tablet and you could put a $25, $30 case on it and you could teach your people not to use them as Frisbees, if you can get five of those for every one of the other one, right? Well, yeah. on top of the fact that it's cheaper, 
It also doesn't weigh 15 pounds. And if you're carrying that in addition to the EKG monitor, in addition to the pack and the pot and the person, that's a lot of grind on a person's body. So we actually had to teach people to, to even go away from some of the hardware that they were using that was worth looking at other form factors. Um, so, you know, that, that was an interesting one. I think that's probably the single biggest thing. And I remember when, when we were in B school and some of these lessons, I'm really glad that I remember, <laughs> but you know, when people talk about what your competitors are and, and it's really tempting, especially with someone with a big idea to say that, you know, we're the first to do something and as if that matters. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it's marketing and sometimes it's not great to be the guy who built the first digital magazine and then lost a bunch of money doing it. Um, but uh, if I knew then what I know now. So, um, but, you know, inertia is always a competitor. And that's something that often gets forgotten. So the idea that, you know, if someone is used to using a pencil and paper, or they're used to using their tough book, they don't know how... A, a modern EPCR is different than the one that I have. Well, it's it's called an EPCR, right? It, it's got to kind of be the same thing. Well, no, we, we, maybe we've run out of words. We've run out of, you know, acronyms or whatever, but you should try to, to see the difference. Um, and so people being used to something is always a competitor. And I think that took a while. Um, the sea change, I actually feel very personally because I'm not a medic and I'm not a firefighter. Um, I'm a technologist, I'm a data geek, uh, you know, I was a publisher, right? I do all these different things, but I can't claim to be a clinician. And for probably the first 10 years of my career in this business, that was a problem. Uh, there were a lot of people who would say things like, what do you know? You've never ridden on the truck. Well, have, and I've spent a lot of time on the truck and I've, I've spent a lot of time being with people who are dealing with a lot. And, you know, I didn't show up and decide I was going to do this in five minutes. But, you know, four years to deploy a product means I did something in that time. But but the reality is that sense of do you even get what we're doing was a real problem. And mm. then the market started to shift for data and economics. And some of that has to do with, you know, sort of macro business discussions and inflation and, you know, people clamping down on municipal budgets all kinds of stuff, but um, basically it became a question of accountability. And it turns out that being the only company, we are the only company in this space that was founded by two non-clinician MBAs. Uh, and the point is that was at one point a real Achilles heel and it has turned out to be probably the best gift we could have asked for because mm -hmm. the industry has plenty of people who can say, I rode on a truck, I was a firefighter, I was a medic, just like you. And I can say, I wasn't that, but I can tell you how to get paid. And if your problem is getting paid, not finding a clinician, I'm your guy. If you want somebody who can say that they've taken care of patients at two o'clock in the morning, I'm not that guy. Um, and and so there's an interesting bifurcation happening now where, you know, some people are still all about the club and that's okay. Uh, and so the empathy of that, but there are other people who are saying empathy is great, but I'm going to shut down my service or I'm not going to be able to continue to fund my community paramedicine program unless I figure out how to get some money behind this. And it turns out being the guy with, you know, a different three letters after my name, not EMTP, uh, but MBA turns out to be really helpful. Very, very interesting. So really would interesting you twist, right? like the, it is what, what was the Achilles heel turned out to be great. And we, we, you know, Lord knows we've tightened the belt to get here, but uh, it's really fascinating as we started talking about before to sort of watch the market catch up.
because yeah. uh, we like to think that we saw where it was going and wanted to be where the puck was going, not where it was. Yeah, no, for sure. So I, you spoke a lot to kind of just market trends changing. What would you say were some of the biggest wins? Was it some of those macro levels just adjusting and departments saying, hey, we actually are losing our budget here. We need to make this profitable. Hey, you might have a solution. Would you talk to us, Jonathan, and go down that route? What were your biggest wins? I, I think that's I think that's sort of a, a way where things ended up. Um, I don't know if it was that direct. I think, and I, I will say, even from our earliest days in Pittsburgh, I I discovered what I'm about to say, which is that every market, every community has its early adopters, right? And that and that may sound you know both obvious, either obvious or non obvious, depending on where you are, I guess. But if you think about adoption curves. Right. And the idea that someone has to be first and someone's going to take longer. Some places make that a part of their culture. Uh, and, and some places are just, you know, I'm the first to hear about it because I tend to go to conferences more. I mean, it doesn't doesn't really matter. But we really we really focused on those early adopters. The early adopters are a fascinating group. And like I say every community has them. Some of them are, you know, the first agency in Pittsburgh or the first agency in Colorado that wants to do something. Um, some of it are just the ones that are kind of on their own, so they don't really have a choice and mm. they have to sort of figure out or die, right? A lot of rural services face that quandary. So by focusing on the early adopters, we tend to find folks who realize that something better should be doable. They kind of have ideas, but they don't necessarily know where the dividing line is between a pipe dream and something feasible right now. We started to see more of that, right? That was the shift. So, you know, I, I think it coincided with a few different things. One is, you know, the move toward things like iPhones and iPads. And, you know, I don't really, I don't really need a tough book anymore. If I'm going to buy new, you know, new hardware, is there something else I should be looking at? Or should I take this same now 10 year old software and just put it on my new device? That, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, I'll tell you one really interesting example that it comes to mind on this was speech to text. So we were the mm. first company to put speech to text and a camera in a patient care record system. Neither of which is rocket science, by the way. Um, I mean, if you think about what you're doing, freeing up hands and and being able to, you know, if a picture's worth a thousand words, well, what's a video worth? I mean, these are these are real, they're cliche, but they totally apply when you're talking about, you know, the time to write a narrative. Uh, or convey something in 30 seconds, you know, you were doing this, you conveying something to someone who may or may not be paying attention to you. And if I can give you a snippet of video, I mean, that's even better. So, so really quite fascinating. We introduced the speech to text uh, in 2012. Um, so long time ago now, but technology got 11 years ago. Um, and there's a cool story that led up to it, but I'll, I'll tell you that if you want to hear it, otherwise it's, it's worth another conversation sometimes. But the bottom line is I went across the country and I asked people, would you love, would you want speech to text? No one wants to hunt and peck for keys, right? No one, no one really wanted to be spending the time writing their narrative. They all loved the idea. And I said, well, would you use it? And they said, no. The, what you just said, you right? You want, you want the speech to text, but you wouldn't use it. I said, when it hmm. turns out, the, the problem was at the time we needed you to wear a headset. Right. The gotcha. unidirectional microphones and other things weren't as good, so on and so forth on, on computers. So they're gonna need you to wear a headset. You've got a Jabra, you've got the jawbone, like the different ones that you could have. You have like the boom microphone, all these different things that people are like, no way. I said, but is it more worth it to you 
to wear the microphone or to have the speech to text. And we got some really cool responses. I mean, some people were just afraid of looking stupid. Other people were afraid they'd lose it or forget to charge it, which is a legit concern. And then, of course, there were some who had a very wise view of, you know, you could end up with fluids on there and from the patient. Maybe you don't want to have their blood, you know, even a couple drops near your mouth, right? So all of these were really cool points that basically got people to say, thanks, but no thanks. Well, okay. But the fellow who had turned me on to that was the now uh, retired chief of Pittsburgh EMS, Bob McCon. And, and he had this prediction back in like 2010 that the whole industry was going to go hand, you know, without hands, so hands-free and voice and other sort of powered interfaces. So I really believed that he was onto something. And a couple of years later, we noticed that speech-to-text became a requirement for a lot of places. So I found myself asking, what changed, right? I mean, how do you get from people saying, hmm. no, no, no to absolutely need to have this. I totally love it. I want to be able to dictate my stuff. Can you let me navigate a whole chart with my voice? What do you think changed? I have, I don't know. So, so I did a lot of digging on this because this is the kind of stuff they teach you to do at a quant school. Um, hmm. and, and we have some tools like conjoint analysis that are kind of an amazing thing. If any of your listeners are interested, it's very geeky, but it's very important. It's the way that companies like Starbucks have won in their business sectors. It's one of the few things I remember from business school specifically. Um, so conjoint analysis helps you understand features. And so understand which feature really rises, which is the one that really makes a difference. Uh, and so we applied that concept to this. And it turns out that the, the difference between then and now were hands-free laws. So back in 2010 and 2012, you could still drive around in some jurisdictions with your cell phone in your hand. By 2018, 2019, 2020, there's pretty much nowhere in the United States that you can do that. So people got used to the idea that I'm going to wear a headset or I'm going to have a microphone that's good enough that I don't need it because it'll pick up my voice, right? And, and so, you know, when you ask the question, kind of what, what, you know, surrounding context that allowed us to advance, it really was that focus on interoperability that I talked about before, but really a modernizing of the expectations of what technology should be able to do. You should be able to do speech to text. You should be able to have a camera and, and take yeah. that image and type it through to the hospital in real time. I shouldn't have to wait to get back to my station to do my documentation because when I get back to my station, I want to have dinner, right? I want to take a nap, right? So I, I Or I might have to go take care of another patient or clean my, my rig, right? <laughs> or do whatever I need to do. I don't really want to sit down and start charting. Why can't I do that in the field? Well, my software system, frankly, isn't well designed for that. It's a nice way of putting it. But if the software system is not well designed, I don't really have a choice. But if you start to expect those types of things, which is what modern technology is enabling folks to do, and I don't think this has to do with age, by the way. There's a lot of people who would say that this has to do with the aging of our industry and like younger people coming up. But I don't think that's true. I think some of the most sophisticated technology folks in our industry are people who've been there for 20 and 30 years and they've seen what was before, they realized it wasn't great if you were using tape on the leg or the back of the glove. And, and the fact that I had to learn something, okay, the way that I tell people is it's a whole lot easier to learn how to do documentation efficiently than to learn to shove a tube down somebody's throat, bring them back to life or rip apart a car and pull <laughs> them out. So we, we had to take on ourselves and I don't just mean us as a company, but as an industry, this idea that if you are building tools that are designed to be used at the patient in real time to facilitate interoperability, to, to know who Ryland is and what his needs are, you have to change the design 
And there are still so many people complaining about things like Nemesis and HL7 and the underlying guts of the thing. And they don't realize the problem is not there. The problem hmm. is on what you what you have in your hand. And if you haven't made investments in modernizing, you know, you can't expect your your car to go zero to 60 if it's 15 years old and you get its oil change every, you know, every 18 months. Right. So if you want performance and if you want efficiency and if you want all those things, you would modernize yourself. But if I'm going and teaching you that you need to do that and you just think I'm going to I'm trying to sell you something, you don't necessarily believe me. What we're finding now is that there's all these external factors like the hands-free laws and the availability of you know computer in your pocket. Right Now, all of a sudden, people have an expectation. Why can't I check my patient in to the hospital on the way in? Like I check myself in to the to the air, you know, to the flight on the way to the airport. Uh, that was brought to me by Chief Mike Metro, who's the now retired chief paramedic of Los Angeles County Fire hmm. many years ago. Because he was pissed off at the idea that he could do all these things, just not in healthcare, not in emergency medicine. I said, yeah. well, then let's rock and roll. Very, very interesting. So it's very cool to see how you guys have progressed. I mean, clearly when you guys started, you didn't have the devices that you touched on. You didn't have AWS to go build on. Uh, you didn't have any of these new features. So it'll be really cool kind of watching you guys continue to grow. What are your goals over the next five years or so for Beyond Lucid on your team? What are you guys focusing on? More. Uh, just continuing. So, yeah, look, uh, I, I get to say, and, and it is a privilege of Anna Burton to be able to say we are one of the one of the very few, if not, I can say one of the only consistently profitable digital health ventures anywhere. Of uh, that is a responsibility on us, right? We, we the the idea that we are presenting value that our partners are willing to pay for. Uh, is something that puts an everyday responsibility on us. I am of the belief that software should never be considered finished. You're always adding to it. So, you know, as I mentioned, interoperability um, is a thing. It's an expectation. There are a lot of people choking on the lack of interoperability right now. And even worse, there are whole regions kind of banging their heads, thinking they have to use one particular company or another because they don't realize that there are necessarily other ways of doing things. Um, even things that can keep those companies in place, but help to connect the missing dot that we've talked about before. Of you mentioned the vehicle aspect, um, you know. So I, I'm really glad that you did, and I don't know if you saw this on the website, but um, Halcyon post crash intelligence is a very important part of our future. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a patented technology that we have uh, that we've created that essentially will inform responders. Uh, on route to the scene about who was likely impacted by a crash. Uh, do, I think that is a massive driver of our future. Um, no pun intended, I guess, uh, because because it doesn't have a choice. Right? Uh, in 2021, our country had 43,000 uh, deaths on roadways um, for all of the smart, and that's according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Of you know, because of all of the safety technologies and automated driving and just all of the things that are getting introduced to increase safety on the roads, our 22 death rate was 10% higher. Wow. So in 46,000 deaths last year, as opposed to 43 the previous year, um, that's a tragedy, right? And, and, and so to the degree that we are, I've, I've often asked it in a way of, 
are you know if we're spending effort on making cars smarter and faster and lighter and cheaper and automated are we also making them safer and the answer is clearly not of but it turns out that there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into that so when we for example talk about interoperability and we have a registry system that we deployed uh in Oregon first and uh next on deck is Virginia uh, we just, I'll make some news on your pod here. Uh, we just got given an ETA for deployment of the start of the next school year. So oh, congrats. Uh, uh, September 23. Thank you. There's still some pieces to put in place, but we have a, it's a publicly announced ETA uh, that, uh, you know, these, these pipes, these pre-hospital pipes serve up information, for instance, about uh, a, a pediatric patient's special health needs. Right. Do they have medical equipment? Do they have, uh, uh, you know, an underlying uh, disease or disability that that someone may not know when they just show up? Right. Does a patient have an end of life medical order or some other critical wish that needs to get addressed? Well, guess what? All of those also apply in the vehicular space. Right. What if it turns out that in the back seat is a kid with epilepsy or autism or sickle cell or cystic fibrosis? And mom is passed out on the front seat because she was involved in a crash and she can't tell you what's going on with the kid in the back. Or she's one of the, get this, 36 and a half million epilepsy patients who drive, right? So if you've got almost 37 million people with epilepsy, someone has an issue, but that issue may not be related to the epilepsy. The crew shows up with the lights going and that puts you into a photosensitive seizure now you have a second problem, right? So these pieces of information are massive markets and they're completely wide open. And not that I want people to go into them other than me, we got this. <laughs> um, but you know, our, our goal is to continue putting in place the infrastructure that allows these things to go, that allows them to lessen the wall times, You know, get the patients out of the inpatient bed so that the ED patient can go into the inpatient bed and the crew can get the patient off the cot. <laughs> and, and those efficiencies are simply not being deployed at scale by incumbents for reasons that, quite frankly, I don't understand. I don't think it's because the markets aren't real. They're very real. Uh, yeah. They're lucrative, they're painful, and they're massive. But I think people are so head down focused on maintaining the business they've had and the joy of the of the the smaller agile company um my business partner says i can't call ourselves a startup anymore because we've been around for a minute <laughs> but but the joy of being agile is you know clay christensen when, when you know the the harvard professor uh, late harvard professor who studied disruptive innovation talked about this you know as the dinosaurs get bigger they they leave shadows and those shadows get bigger um, now we have the, the Harvard Business Review actually just published a podcast a couple of weeks ago about something called non-disruptive creativity. And it was it, it was something that truly inspired me. It was really this idea that instead of changing everything about the status quo, like so much innovation has been focused on, what if we focus on collaborating with the status quo and filling in those gaps? And now, now all of a sudden, you don't have to rip out anything people have invested in. Instead, you do the opposite. You make it better. Right. And so you're squeezing more juice out of that orange rather than saying, I'm going to give you a lemon and you're going to like it. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people have been used to. So we are going to focus on closing those gaps, um, making sure we're sustainable in doing that and you know, growing up into the right. Uh, but but it's really not just about lipstick on a pig. It's about being able to say, what is the measurement that that shows that these are bringing value so that folks who are sort of done not having 
a sustainable model can say there's an option out there and I don't have to uninvest from everything I already have to use it. I can layer on more things. And when you start talking about things like AI, uh, I think that's its promise, right? It's not as a replacement, it's an augmentation. Um, so you end up with an augmented reality, to use the cliche, uh, as opposed to something that is, uh, you know, either vaporous uh, or so expensive and invest, you know, invasive that you can't afford to get it. Um, and and that's a those are big spaces. So we're going to be pretty busy, but we're pretty excited. Very cool. Well, I'll definitely be sure to kind of keep watching as you guys continue Please. on. Uh, just for for a couple other questions before we wrap up. For anyone in your team, what do you look for in personality and character traits in a new member joining your team? Oh, that's a great question. Um, funny, I, I used to, well, I used to talk about this a lot internally. I was never externally. Um, the higher ranked your school, the less interested in you I probably am. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's a weird thing. That's a weird perspective when it comes to Silicon Valley, right? is, you know, the, the Stanford's, the Berkeley's, the Harvard's, Penn's, et cetera. I have, I got no interest in that. Um, I, I used to, I mean, it's not to say that I have nothing but love for those folks. I do. I mean, I had nothing but love for them, but, but mobile medicine is a hard business. This is not, this is not shiny wall street work. Um, I, I used to say that the people that I want on my team are the ones who can talk about football or some other sport thereof uh guys or girls depending on your persuasion and how much work sucks <laughs> because that's what people talk about right it, it you our our profession is relationship based it's trust based you got to know the medicine again rylan you know this you know as well as anybody could so you got to know the skills you know and you got to have the goods and be able to show up and perform on whatever the task is but it, it's it's really about if if i'm going to be at an event and i'm standing at the bar can I can I have a relationship with this person and build trust there? So that's number one, two, and three for me is, you know, we we have a team that is in many ways so bizarre. Um, you know, my my engineers are the best in the business, 100%. Um, there is nobody who can touch them from an engineering perspective, especially when you consider the, the size of our team and what we've managed to accomplish. Um, and so the dedication, the recognition that this industry is 24 seven, 365, yet those sort of come with the territory, right? You're, you're again, you, you were a medic, so you understand, or you said EMT, right? So, okay. you know, you, you understand that like the worst days of the year for, for folks in our industry are Thanksgiving after nine, uh, New Year's Eve, July 4th, right? Labor Day, so any of those holidays where people decide to either get really stupid or put things into holes they don't belong in so, and, and light them on fire because for just, mm. you know, for added added pow. Uh, you know, this is a 365 a day, you know, a year business. Um, we don't have an off switch. So you've got to be willing to work and you're willing to serve. But um, it, it really is about building a relationship with the end user <laughs> such that they know that when they pick up the phone, that they get us. Um, and and that's something that all of our partner clients have ever, uh, they, they write about in, in testimonials. It's it's a wonderful compliment that when they need us, they pick up the phone and they call and they know they're gonna get someone who cares. Um, so that's what I look for. It, it, it's, it's hard to quantify that, but I know it's the opposite of entitlement. And so to the degree that there are places that believe that just because you have a certain ranking I mean, Carnegie Mellon's a pretty good school. So is Boston University. I mean, spent time at MIT. I've, I've got the credentials, but you know, I would, 
I don't work in an ecosystem where that's going to get you in the door. Uh, you know, if you if you have a Harvard degree and you can't pass your 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 exams, you're not going to get a patch. Right. And so I want to know that the folks that we work with are going to appreciate the fact that this this work is hard, but it's rewarding. It's mission driven. Um, if you have a great education, that's great. But but ultimately, can you build the trust of the people you're in trust, you're, you know, that you're working with, whether it's patients or colleagues or or whoever? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree that relationships, especially in healthcare, are the most valuable ones. Um, There's a lot of empathy as long as you here. Can connect with people. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and very, very important. So, just to, my last question for you: Looking back on your life now, what advice would you give your 21 year old self? So, as an entrepreneur <laughs> that's just starting, one little piece of advice that you would say: Hey, oh, entrepreneurial advice. Okay, because uh, I'll tell you, and I don't think I've never said this on record, but if I was going to give my 21 year old self advice because i went to school in boston and i swear to god i'm not entirely sure what i did for my five years that i was in school uh <laughs> i had a blast i studied a lot i got two degrees out of it but i never went to cape cod and if i'm going to be living in boston i never went to the cape i'm not really sure what i was doing so i would tell my 21 <laughs> self get ye down to the cape find someone cool to drive with because it's a long drive and bring a jacket but go to the cakes um what you know that's a great question i'll, I'll let me end on a high point then because this is something I learned from my dad. And it's funny, he doesn't remember. I'm going to get all emotional. Um, he, he actually doesn't remember this, he's told me. But he had a poster in his office for years. I actually have this on my Facebook page, uh, if you wanted to, to check it out. Uh, um, the poster was of a guy walking with his back toward you down a road. Uh, and I would say, this is this is what I would tell a an, an entrepreneur starting out. This is it. The quote on the poster was, the most dangerous customer isn't the one who complains. It's the one who doesn't. Ask the damn question. So, you know, as a journalist, probably my single biggest superpower, and it's ironic because I, I always feel a little uncomfortable in interviews like this. I'm, I'm more comfortable interviewing people than I am being interviewed. Um, I like to ask the question and let it ride. And actually, kind of like you're just kind of letting me go wherever I go. Right. But you learn things about what people are thinking that you wouldn't necessarily think to ask them. Right. My favorite question as an interviewer always was, tell me something you thought I was going to ask you or you were hoping I asked you, but I didn't. Right. And then all of a sudden, whoa, I didn't expect that. And then something pops to mind. And that's what you're going to tell me. So. When someone tells you they like your stuff, ask why, but ask them what they hate about it too, right? If someone tells you that you're, you know, nobody keeps every every client forever. Uh, I have to explain that to my guys because, as I mentioned, they, we build those relationships and they take it very seriously. And so, if someone chooses to go in another direction, we feel those. Um, but I ask them, right? I, I can't expect that it, you know someone's going to stay with us their entire life, but. But if somebody saw something in somebody else and somebody didn't see something over here, I want to learn from that. And and so, you know, we have only ever rarely had somebody we don't we don't turn a lot anyway. But um, when we I mean, 90 plus percent retention. So big ups to us. We're really proud of that. Uh, but when somebody goes, I try whatever I can to get them to explain to me, did we drop the ball? Right? Was it a feature that we that you needed? Was it a matter of pricing? Did somebody and, and and oftentimes it may be an external factor, right? There may be a new regulatory something that we don't know about. It had nothing to do with us. Um, it may be that 
uh, they had a, an issue between you know management and union and they and there was some internal politics thing or someone left the department and so someone else is coming in and they want to bring their things that they know their yeah. systems um so we try to take very very seriously when someone picks up the phone and says i need this or i'm frustrated or i'm curious or i'm whatever right that's gold man uh, and I think the worst thing that people can do, and I've known people who've done this, who sort of puff themselves up and tried to make themselves look bigger than they were, especially at the beginning, I think that's lethal. It can be it can be useful if you're trying to make yourself seem bigger, but but then you may turn out to be a house of cards. And I think we're past that. I hope we're past that as an industry, at least for a while. But if if somebody's willing to take the time to tell you their insights. Man, that that stuff is just wonderful. So you should not be going for the ones who are going to tell you what's awesome. Listen to the ones who are going to tell you what sucks and then fix everything. Take care of the ones who like you. That's important. But one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was focus on the happy clients. Focus on the unit economics. That was from Lisa Sunin, who's an extremely well-known healthcare investor and advisor and leader and uh, you know all executive. She's amazing. And she said, growth will take care of itself. Let people tell you what they like. Make sure that the unit economics are in the black. And then and then once people are happy, let them tell the story to their friends. Because that is more valuable than anything I would ever be able to tell them. Um, that's it. That's what I would say. So when they're willing to tell you what you need to improve, man, put stars next to that. And then make sure you follow up with them and show them what you did and say, hey, look, you inspired this. Uh, and then they take a sense of ownership of the fact that they made you better. If you're going to work in an industry like healthcare, man, there are easier ways to make a buck. So if you know that you can have a tangible return by your knowledge helped make something better, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get that person to use your stuff, but they're certainly not going to forget the fact that you came back to them and said that they made an impact. Uh, and so that, that goes back to the relationships. Very, very, that's a, true. That's very, very true. Well, thank you so much for time, Jonathan. I really appreciate our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your week. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your interest and for letting me ramble at you. Thank you, Jonathan. Take care.